This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So aerospace front and center today, thanks to Boeing. Uh, the earnings missed analyst estimates just for the second time in five years as executives continue to grapple with one of the worst crises in the plane maker's century-long history. Boeing also abandoning its 2019 financial forecast as it deals with the aftermath of two deadly crashes of its 737 MAX aircraft. Let's get some thoughts on this. Jim Corridor, he has followed the aerospace industry for a long time. He's equity analyst at CFRA Research, joining us on the phone in New York. Boeing shares, by the way, they have traded higher all day. And Jim, first of all, nice to have you here with Vince and myself. We were just talking about this earlier. One would have thought that shares of Boeing would be under some pressure today based on what we heard from the company, and they're not. How come? Yeah, for two reasons. Number one, you know, the financials, yes, they missed by $0.03 cents, uh, on $3.16 in earnings. But you know, they painted a picture of a company that is still generating cash from operations, still profitable, and is booking uh, tremendous amounts of business on the defense side and on the services side of the business. And it's understandable that they would have a revenue shortfall because the 737 was grounded. But at the same time, the 787 is still doing well. And the second thing that's most important is that the company painted a very thoughtful, very rigorous timetable to how they're going to get the plane back into service, making sure that they focus on safety, making sure they get it right, getting buy-in from all constituents, from government agencies, from customers, from passengers, making sure that when the plane comes back into service, it's safe. And that's the number one issue that gives us more faith that the company is going to get it right. I feel like it's a, it's a lesson, right? It's like a Harvard Business School you know, case study. Get it all out there. Be specific. Let everybody know what you're going to do. Right, because you know, what was already known was that the plane was out of service, that the company was going to miss, that they're going to you know, do poorly in 2019. That's all known. What was unknown is how the company is going to respond to this crisis, and they seem to be stepping up to the plate and really doing a good job in communicating and making sure that they get it right. So it's two points you make, I think, which are, are brilliant, is obviously the cash flow. Um, they're, they're sitting on about, what, $7.7 billion in cash. They've, they've admitted to their mistakes. They're getting their mistakes in line. They have plenty of cash and, and momentum going forward to sort this out for 2019. So only upside from here. Well, in addition to what you just said about their cash flow, it's also their access to capital markets. They've got a $5.1 billion revolver that they haven't tapped. Mm. They can get long-term debt over time as, as, as they want to. So they've got plenty of liquidity to respond to the crisis. Um, is it all up from here? I'm not certain. There's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be you know, blips in the schedule. If the company isn't able to return the plane to service by summer, we may see a sell-off in the stock. And even as we have good news, sometimes the stock may sell off on that good news. Now, certainly, it hasn't been hit as much as you would expect in this crisis. The stock's only down about 13 percent uh, since uh, the crash and is actually up 10 percent year to date so uh, you know there may be uh, some sell-offs in the future but we are positive for the longer term but and we have to understand right that the 737 is Boeing's main source of profit correct well, yeah, they get 70% of their business from the commercial aerospace side, and we believe that 60% of that is probably from the 737. So it's certainly a huge, hefty, a hefty part of their business and very important to the future, of course. And um, something of a monopoly, realistically speaking? I mean, when you look at the airline industry, there's, there are two heavy hitters, more or less. And, and again, if, they're, if their prospects are to get their, their house in order, 
there aren't too many options for people to come back to. So this is a tried and true source um, with a lot of upside potential. Yeah, that's exactly the right point. If you look at uh, Boeing's long-term commercial aerospace outlook, they're expecting the global airline fleet to double over the next 20 years. That's 42,000 planes that's going to come into service. We think they're going to get at least half of that business over time. So, you know, they're going to get through this crisis, and as long as they do, and they restore their legacy, and they restore their reputation, they're going to be just fine. But, you know, and Jim, I think Vince brings up a good point, right? In terms of choices, you're either going to do Airbus or, or, or um, Boeing, right, when it comes to these big jets. That's what's really out there, at least at this point. Yeah, Boeing lost one very small order in Indonesia after the crash. Um, they had one airline that went out of business, uh, Jet Airways, that they lost about 200 planes there. But nothing else to the long-term order book has changed. They're sold out into the next decade. They've got about six years of production ready to go. So, you know, on, on the demand side of the business, things are very strong. So uh, what, what are the hurdles now to, to get the Max back online? I mean, we, we hear there was a software issue, the, the sensor issue. Um, how, far, how far down the line are they to sorting this out and essentially getting the FAA to, you know, to approve it? I mean, I, they're working with the FAA every day. I think they're close. They've had uh, 156 test flights of the of the plane with the new software, but I think they want to be very thoughtful. They want to make sure that there's, you know, buy-in from all regulators globally. They want to bring the plane back into service all around the world at the same time, and that's going to take some coordination. And the other thing to think about is that, you know, obviously the government was dinged a little bit by the idea that Boeing had too close of a relationship with mm-hmm. them in terms of self-certification of these planes. The government's going to want to make sure that they put their footprint on this recertification and make Make sure that people know that they weren't lax. Hey, Jim, i got to ask you. We're going to hear from uh, the United uh, Continental CEO shortly, uh, Oscar Muniz, uh, doing an interview with uh, Bloomberg. And I'm curious, when you look at the major airlines or something like a United Continental, what do you want to hear from these guys right now? What's kind of the one or two big questions that you think need to be answered by these guys? I think there's three things. Number one, what is the unit revenue picture going into summer? We want to see unit revenues growing. That's the number one thing that investors are concerned about. Our fare is going to be going up for the future. Number two, is capacity going to be balanced? I think that the airlines are actually getting a little bit of a break right now because the 737 MAX being grounded is kind of forcing them into a little bit of capacity constraint that they might not have otherwise had. Mm. So that's uh, something that we want to look at for the future. Are they going to keep capacity balanced? And third, with with oil prices surging, uh, what is the outlook for fuel prices? You got a favorite? Do you have a favorite name in the airline space right now? Yeah, within the airline space, our favorite pick is Delta Airlines. They get the highest number of business travelers. We think they're generating the most cash from operations, and they're getting a unit revenue premium to most of their peers. Uh, so we like the way they're operating. All right, and I like to be fair. So, what's your least favorite name in the space right now? <laughs> so we've got a hold on on JetBlue. We, ah. we think that they're going to be hit a little bit by um, the rise in fuel costs that we're seeing you know, with oil prices up. All right, going to leave it on that note. Jim, thank you, thank you. Really appreciate it. Uh, we know you've been following this industry for a long time, so really appreciate your insight. Jim Cordor is equity analyst at CFRA Research, joining us on the phone in New York. It's the time of the season. Yeah, we are definitely in the thick of it. Earnings season, big time. A bunch of uh, reports out already this week. More coming after the closing bell. So far, according to Bloomberg data, corporate earnings are coming in 4% higher than forecast overall. Sales, mm, just fractionally better, about 0.4% overall. Enough, though, for the S&P and NASDAQ to hit records, as you know, just yesterday. Does it all make sense? Well, here's some thoughts on that. Is Matt Miskin. He's market strategist over at John Hancock Investments, of course, always typically based in Boston made his way to New York and found uh, his way to our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. So when you look at this earnings season, right, um, revenue growth, not so much. Earnings, 
a little bit higher. Um, pretty much what we expected, though. I mean, the expectations were so low, Matt. They were, but there was a lot of uh, places where CEOs and CFOs could have used a lot of excuses. So stronger dollar, higher oil prices, higher interest rates, uh, higher wages. There was a lot of things, especially, I mean, polar vortex, government shutdown. <laughs> and still, companies are growing earnings. Now, it's not a lot, but the market likes it. They're the, not growing revenues a lot, though. No. Which and is it's, the metric we tend to really focus on, right? We, you can do a lot of things with our earnings. Right. And there's a, there's a war on margins right now. Trying to raise prices is hard. We are seeing some businesses being able to do it, and pricing power is really important right now. You're seeing quality stocks, and we think about quality as good margins, high return on equity, good balance sheets. That's leading the market higher. We think that's the right part of the market to be looking at right now. So you mentioned, as I'm just watching the screens and I see the dollar index is making session highs, and we typically think dollar not good for equities, particularly the large cap, and margins uh, shrinking, and this doesn't help that. But yet we saw Coke, for instance, do fairly well in that space with the higher dollar. Are are these companies just getting around to better hedging against this, or, or is there a potential for increasing margins? I think that they're raising prices globally in terms of the consumer staples businesses, and they're able to overcompensate from the dollar headwind that's been playing out. But the story's not over. The dollar continues to look like it's gaining momentum here. And if that continues to play out in Q2, Q3, talk about analysts looking at you know pretty negative or tepid earnings growth and revenue growth. They don't think there's going to be much in the next two quarters. It's all baked into Q4. Q4 is going to come out with double-digit earnings growth according to the street, and if the dollar keeps strengthening... Because the really, comparisons are so easy? That's part of it. And basically, they're just plugging in a nice number, it seems like, to get that next 12-month earnings but to a, bounce back. A lot of that is plugged into where a lot of analysts are predicting a lower dollar and b- bigger gains in emerging markets, which does spell for better exports, revenue, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that goes back to that char- uh, China story that you, yeah. you guys were talking about earlier. And, and hopefully that stimulus... I mean. Rewind a month ago, you thought you were going to get all that stimulus up front. Mm-hmm. And if you bake that into Q4, that's how you get there. But nowadays, you know, China's coming out saying that they're going to be more tepid in terms of increase or having that stimulus flow into their economy. That changes that dynamic into the Q4. I got to ask you, and I've really thought about this um, maybe because I was thinking about last year when we were at a pretty good gain. And then, of course, December happened and then we weren't. And then I'm thinking, what are we up on the S&P 500 now? Is it now up about 17% or something? Yeah, up almost 17%. That in any year, we'd be so happy if by the end of December, that's where we are. What what's the case for investors to just say I'm happy? Certainly, if you're playing the equity markets, I'm going to park it in something safe and just let's let's see what happens because there's so many questions it feels like that are out there for the rest of the year. Well, there's nothing wrong with rebalancing, and you know if you have a sixty forty portfolio and you have sixty percent equities and they're up seventeen percent, shave some of that, put it into bonds, or even look at defensive equities. Defensive equities, utilities, consumer staples—they're still up decent, but tech's up twenty seven percent. You're talking about semiconductors. Mm-hmm. Look for trimming some of your your wins and rebalancing that into other parts of the market. Right, there's utilities n- are up nine percent this year. They're at the bottom, almost the bottom of the pack when it looks at the uh, at the major industry groups in the S and P five hundred, but still up nine percent. Healthcare would be another one. Healthcare is. I, I noticed yeah. you mentioned yeah. that. And, and That's almost flat for the year. Given you seriously don't expect uh, Medicare for all to get done or, or real drug prices to get done, these are the big, big items. And without that, healthcare should rally. 
Yeah, to us, healthcare right now is is off the radar in terms of sector performance. And really, we think that it's already pricing in the election, which is usually the, the market starts pricing in what's going to happen in the election, the August before the election. We're 16 months ahead of that. And we think healthcare is is offering a lot of value right now. Earnings are third best across sectors. We'll take that, even though it's the worst performing part of the market. Multiple compression. We like that setup. Um. You know, it was funny. I was looking for something because there was something in our, our, our day break. Oh, here it is. Chart of the day. I love this. It's kind of a Dave Wilson moment. Sell in May and go away could be more than just a cute rhyme, at least when the stock market is surging. The S&P 500 was up 17% this year through yesterday, a little bit back today, a level that didn't always bode well for the index in the following months. When the gains were between 13 and 15% through April, the market performed as well for the next eight months, if not better. I mean, does it make you a little bit nervous in terms of the run-up? The counter argument to this would be that the retail, the end investors have not been buying this rally. If you look at the flow data- But they haven't been buying for a long time. True. But (laughs) it's been even more magnified year to date. And the guys who are saying that they're not buying the rally benefit by people buying into the market. Right. I mean, look- Hundred billion into bonds. I do this to everyone, so don't feel like I'm, I'm beating you. <laughs> no, up I love anything. it. And but at the end of the day, you know, I I think investors were offsides coming into this year. A lot of negative sentiment. Now the dial has turned. If you look at the greed fear index, things are moving towards greed. We're starting to see anecdotal evidence of the FOMO. You know, fear of missing out. Trade starting to come about. But it's pretty broad based too. The move to the upside, right? Yeah, but you, if you go back and look at it, you're saying the upside from January seventeen odd percent. But when you look deeper into 2018, we're flat. I know, I know. For the so right. you, you can have you can argue both sides of that coin. And when you look at 2018, pretty much the rally started in May as well. So it kind of discounts the current theory a little bit. All right. Why wow, you're beating up on me too? I, I'm but just, we, but I'm just being positive for I mean, like we, that ba- point. we basically erased. <laughs> we basically erased December, and I mean, you know, I thank the Fed for what happened in December, and then what happened in 2019. And the Fed turned it around in 2019 by Correct. turning turning on their heels. Yeah. yeah, and if the Fed is still on the sideline for the rest of 2019, this market still could have. Do you side. think the Fed is on the sideline for the rest of 2019? We think it's 50-50 going into 2020 of a rate hike or a rate cut. So basically, they're going to punt all the way to twenty. Because we could be in a recession or near one. Yes. Yeah. Because I mean, they don't. The yield curve. I mean, ten years dropping today. It's at two fifty two or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's a high end of the range. Where the Fed has nowhere to go right now, and the yield curve could invert again. We and were there a month ago, and if we that's were all more sustained, running think, crazy, and here I, we are today. Well, typically. You know, months after the inversion of the yield curve, risk assets rally because they know the Fed's going to be on hold, but it ends poorly. I'm not trying to paint. But it has to be a sustained inversion, right, for it to really make an impact. Yeah. Right. And usually it's almost negative 100 basis points. I mean, think about, though, the upside now, if we do get another inversion of bonds. Bonds, the duration component six on the aggregate index, you know, if you see yields after it's steepened go inverted by 100 basis points or so, that's a 6% pop in, in treasuries. You know, you're not hearing much about that as, as a potential opportunity, but rebalancing right now isn't a bad idea. No, we've seen a couple of good auctions. The, the mm-hmm. one year, the two year, the five year today, both on the screws, the twos and the fives, they played out well. Right. Yeah. All right. Matt Miskin, thank you so much. Thank you. A lot of fun. Matt Miskin, market strategist at John Hancock. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Right now we want to hear from the United Continental CEO there on uh, Bloomberg Television with Joe Weisenthal. With, uh, Oscar Munoz, the CEO of United on the day of the introduction of the new livery. 
the plane looks great. How involved were you in the process and what was the goal of the redesign? A lot of people have really strong opinions about the idea of redesigning a plane as anyone who's Yeah, at it, media this industry does have, uh, it's get excited about a lot of things and this yeah. is an important one. I think uh, the second part of your question, uh, the delivery uh, symbolizes what we're about and it summarizes the things that we've been doing. So the timing for us was, uh, you know, our airline has gone through a lot of transformation, a lot of improvement. So this, we felt it was the right time to sort of introduce sort of a new look. Uh, and uh, my level of involvement is partly deciding when we do it, uh, but more importantly, there's components of it that I think all our executive team got involved at different times. Let's talk about that trans, uh, transformation a little bit more. You're talking about a lot of uh, very high-profile endeavors to sort of raise the perception, not just of the airline, but I feel like flying in general, which a lot of people have strong, again, strong views on. How will you know internally when you feel like you're really achieving those goals of sort of reshaping how people think of United, and yeah. how long will you be spending on these things? Well, um, I think it's a lifelong journey. I think the fact that we are so big and our scale is so global, we have over 90,000 employees flying to 60 different countries uh, and so many flights on a given day. Uh, and so our endeavor is to build a DNA in our culture that cares for every customer, every flight, every day. And that journey is issue. We, talk, we call it about improving the narrative. Uh, flying is stressful and it is difficult. And so how do we make it less stressful? How do we simplify it? How do we personalize your journey? But more importantly, how we make you feel when you fly? Those are our endeavors. So what specific things will travelers experience on United that maybe they didn't experience a couple of years ago that they'll say, okay, this is a better experience? Oh, so um, the biggest objective probably is the way our employee, our family treats you. Um, because all we, we have a great new app that just won the Webby. Uh, we have great Polaris seats for our first class product, for business class product. Uh, we are flying to more destinations that no one else flies to. So we have all of those things. But at the end of the day, it comes to a human to human connection and interaction. And that's what we want you to feel better about. I'm curious uh, what your view is on the economy right now. Obviously, lots of anxiety about whether there's some sort of slowdown. What are you seeing right now in terms of uh, recreational travelers, domestic business travelers, but also the global situation, since it feels like a lot of the weakness is more on the ex-U.S. Yeah, uh, I think it's important to differentiate two things. One, the plan that you have as a corporation about how you're moving forward and how external items affect it. Then there are external items that you can't forget about. And so the economy, um, there's a lot of different viewpoints on it. Our actual view of the future is fairly limited. We, we're not a long range forecasting. Our demand is a little bit more close in, so we don't have as much insight. But the insight that we do have in the areas that we do fly is relatively uh, you know, strong compared to where we've been. We had a very strong year last year, and we'll see fluctuations. Uh, but again, we provided the fact that we're going to grow our top line, but we're also going to deliver financial and we stuck to those uh, to that level of guidance in our last earnings call. Let's talk about Boeing and the 737 MAX. Uh, the grounding of the plane has caused United to slightly uh, downgrade its uh, growth plans. What, how are the conversations going with Boeing in terms of what you know about when they'll be able to fly again and also uh, compensation for the hit that it's going to cause? Yeah. I, I think what's important to understand in all of these conversations that the primary focus of every conversation that I've had and our team has had with anyone involved in this is the safety of flight 
for our customers and our employees. I, I, that's a very important thing. So to that point, we've had no conversations really other than that. Uh, what I know is what everybody else knows. I, I, I think the software fix is, is being tested and reviewed. Uh, and then returning this flight, this, this aircraft to flight safely and uniformly across a broad group in the planet. It can't just be one or two people. We have to be in sort of lockstep to get this aircraft back up. Do you expect that flyers, once the 737 MAX is back in the air, will have trepidations about flying on flights that have that plane? You have a big order for future ones in addition to the ones you have now. Is that something that you're going to try to get ahead of those concerns? Well, I, I think one of the important things about you know everyone bringing this aircraft back to flight uh, uniformly, relatively, that's an important part of it, right? It's like Because if everybody brings it up, I think people will feel more comfortable. There's always going to be trepidation. Everybody's individual. And from our perspective, with our customers, anyone that feels that we will take care of them as best as we can. Do you have any concerns overall about Boeing safety right now? There was a New York Times report uh, a few days ago about concerns raised by whistleblowers at one of their factories. Do you feel confident overall in their product? Uh, of course we do, and we said that then and we'll say that now, but more importantly, we just don't rely on someone else. So, for instance, we inspect our own aircraft thoroughly before we accept it, and we have all the, all the confidence in the 787. Uh, let's talk about um, a, one of your, a flight attendant on a United Express flight was arrested, she was a dreamer, and uh, due to her immigration status, she was detained. How concerned are you, and how much do you monitor the exposure of some of your uh, other employees for the situation, you know, possible jeopardy, and what kind of role could United and the airlines play in the immigration debate? Um, that's a tough one uh, in so many ways. Uh, we all have, uh, we are all sons and daughters of immigrants at some point in time, uh, and I have my personal views, and I think my United family, just in the, our purpose, it says connecting people and uniting the world, you know where we stand on the aspect of people not being separated from their life and family. So uh, we are uh, always monitoring. Obviously, we abide by all laws and rules. Uh, and again, whenever we can take care of someone, that is uh, what I feel, we feel, is the more human thing to do, we'll always err on that side. Is there a role for... As you say, it's on the plane connecting people. Is there a role for airlines in the immigration debate overall? I think there's a role for all of us in this country as leaders to state our opinions, back them up with facts, and support them in any way possible. Uh, folks like myself and my job, we have to be careful between the public posture that we represent and our personal one. But there's always, always a role for all of us to voice our opinions and be passionate and fact-based about everything we, we speak about. I'm curious, uh, personally, uh, not long after you started the job, you suffered a heart attack. What has been your experience from a health perspective and in terms of other people uh, suffering health setbacks? Is there something that you've learned in your experience after that incident that would uh, you would say to people in a similar situation? Yeah, I think... Uh uh, education has been a lot of what I do. I have a nice public forum where I'm able to talk about some of these things. And I think the, probably the, the quick, simple message that I would say, heart disease is the biggest killer in America, and it's because we don't recognize the systems, the, 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 the uh, uh, you know, the, the uh, forgive my, we don't, the symptoms, yeah. um, and we sometimes, especially uh, uh, us that are athletic or whatever, we kind of blow it off. We just say, we're fine. So my first and foremost is like, if you ever, ever feel anything weird or strange, just reach out to 911 and let the, let the medical professionals there. And that'll, that'll save more lives in my commentary that, that, than anything else, because it's important. Well, thank you very much, Oscar Munoz, CEO of United. Really appreciate your time. And uh, in New York, back to you.
All right. You all have been listening to, of course, the United Continental CEO, Oscar Muneza, talking to uh, our own Joe Weisenthal of Wedgemis on Bloomberg Television. So interesting to get his upbeat or listen to what he has to say about the airline industry. I eat grass and I move all day. I'm a cow. I'm a cow. That's why we love our producer, Paul Brennan. He can find a song about anything. We are going to talk about cows because there's a fascinating feature in the magazine this week. One that may maybe fill you with a little bit of fear, though. It's about the impact climate change is having on the agricultural industry and what's being done to deal with it. Uh, and more specifically, really, what's being done to protect our beef supply. Chris Lavelle is climate policy reporter at Bloomberg News. I love all the work he does. Also with us is Joel Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor. Joel's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Chris is in our 991 studio in Washington, D.C. And Joel, I want to kick it off with you because I really do respect how the magazine stays on climate change, climate adaptations, um, this story, because you really get all the specifics. You educate everybody about what's happening around the country, really, around the world. Really, we just call Chris Favelle Chris <laughs> and say, Chris, what are you, what are you working on? Um, but this was um, one that Chris came to us with, and we got really excited about it, because I think if you really dig into Chris's reporting, one of the elements that he always has is about adaptation. Like, how, how are humans going to fare with the changing reality that we'll probably face in the not-so-distant future? And one, you can talk about temperatures and that, but right. you can also talk about something else, which is a food supply. And if we can't secure that, then, then you know, what's it all for? And what he kind of dug into with this story about um, beef is that cattle are actually extremely vulnerable to temperature changes. And what we're looking at, there's actually two breeds of cattle. One tastes good. And I the told other, you, you guys always other, teach us something. Yeah, one tastes good. Um, the <laughs> other, the, the Brahmin, is actually a little bit more heat resistant. It doesn't taste as good. And there's actually an effort underway, which is what the story is ultimately about, of like, can we create a better cow? Right, right. And it's about presenting the situation, but there's also people who are working on this big time. It's actually someone's trying to provide a solution so that you can have steak when everything else goes to hell. So Chris Lavelle, come on (laughs) in on this because I really do. I love your work. Um, I think you just, you know, take us around the country, take us to where the problems are and what's being done. So tell us a little bit about um, what you found out here. Sure. So in the course of my reporting, a constant theme I hear from everybody who works in climate change and adaptation is, you know what, as scary as this all is, if there's one area that's the most scary, as Joel indicated, it's food. Mm -hmm. Because there's so many ways climate change is going to change this country, the economy, almost every industry. But the most sort of urgent existential issue probably is if suddenly the food supply starts to shrink. And, and people in agriculture are deeply aware of that threat. And so I started looking around to see who's doing interesting work in not just worrying about it, but trying to address it. And, and I found a researcher in Florida uh, who, whose job is genomic, genetic research, specifically with livestock, with cattle in particular. And her whole approach is, can we use more intelligent technology to develop a better crossbreed of cow that will be effectively heat-proof, climate-change-proof, but won't taste like beef jerky. And, uh, and, and the story's done that. So I, you know what? She, she's doing a great job. I, she walked me through research. We go through some of the technical details in the story, but she thinks she's two or three years away from a test that ranchers can, can do on their newborn calves that will tell them the odds that those calves will both have 
tasty, high-quality, well-marbled meat, and also really good thermal tolerance, as they call it. And that's so the, we're close. But that's the point, right? Like you might have to give up something, right, unless she can figure this out. Like we'll have beef, but it might not taste so well, right? And it, it'll survive in a hotter environment. But that's what she's trying to figure out, how to provide stuff that tastes good but also survives these higher temperatures. Exactly. So if you, if you pull back from cattle to the entire ag industry or really to any industry, there's a spectrum, right? One end of the spectrum, let's call it the optimistic end, is maybe we can deal with these problems just by you know, cleverly tweaking our inputs. And the result will be we'll have the same stuff we've always had. Won't, won't even necessarily cost us more. It'll just be produced a little bit differently and everything's fine. It's not clear – how widely applicable that's going to be. It, it might work for cattle. We don't know yet. But I think probably more likely is it'll be some mix of the things that we're used to, the product in any industry, will be either more expensive, won't have as wide a variety, or might not be available at all. And I think we're just, we're just getting to the point where that seems like not a, a far-fetched scenario, but probably a pretty likely one. So, uh, Chris, this would be the typical amateur question from someone who grew up in New York City. Um, how, how important, number one, is, is Florida to the beef industry? And, and what are the sort of difficulties in saying, well, if it's too warm in Florida, moving the cattle further north where it's mm. not so warm, and what are the grazing conditions, if you will? What are the opportunities there? I just got about 30 seconds. You know, it's, it's a great question. Grass grows almost year-round, so it's cheap. And so the model, the economy, the industry around this is already built up on low inputs. If those inputs change because of climate change, everything changes. And we're at that point of everything changes. How much can we hold on to before we lose something like steak that we really like? I have a pressing question. How much steak did you eat for this story? I had some the best steak in my life. I was, I was hoping you'd say No that. question about if it. If you came back with anything other than that, yeah. we were going to have to have an offline conversation. Bernays, no Bernays, I just want to know. Ribeyes. Ribeyes. All right, Chris Lavelle, I really do love all the reporting you do. He's our climate policy reporter at Bloomberg News, in our 991 studio in the nation's capital. Check out his story at Bloomberg.com, also on the Bloomberg, and it'll be in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. Joel Weber, our editor of the magazine right here in our New York studio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Eric Clark is portfolio manager at Rational Dynamic Brands Fund. He's joining us on the phone from San Francisco. So, Eric, good to have you here on this Wednesday. How's this market environment looking to you? Well, I, I, I think the last time we talked, we talked about uh, going from fear and uncertainty and doubt in December to full-on FOMO, fear of missing out. And I, I think that's still present. You know, people are kind of chasing because the market really hasn't gone down much since uh, since Christmas Eve. So now the chase is on with people holding some cash and feeling uh, like they're not participating. You, you brought a tear in my eye when you <laughs> said it feels like the 90s. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't remember even then if I was going to a barber or not. Um, looking at one of your favorite retailers, Five Below, tell me about it. Why? Yeah, you know, uh, there, th- that, that category is, 
is a little bit fragmented. You know, you have the Dollar Trees and the Dollar Generals, and mm-hmm. um, and then there's this little this little company with an eight billion dollar market cap, five below, that really is resonating with teens and and kids and even adults. I mean, we still go there um, for for some of that general merchandise. And the the big growth story there is that they're going to triple their store count over the next five or six years. So there's enormous runway for growth. It's not a cheap stock, but it that, you know when you have a lot of store growth that can add to revenues, there's an, a, there's a pretty enormous, uh, you know, kind of a, a, an investment opportunity in there when everybody's focused on some of the other retailers that just, they have so many stores, they can't grow anymore. Do you they know, get 14 any, or 15,000 stores. Do, do they get any, um, a, any tailwind from uh, back to school and stuff? I mean, I've been in there with my kids when they were younger. I haven't been in there in a while. Um, so I, I, I can't really say, but it, I, I do remember something about being sort of a, a not an, an opportunity for a school supply space that was reasonably priced. It, it, it's, it's that and, and everything else. I mean, they're really good at segmenting uh, people's experiences and their needs. And so the stores are very set up for, okay, I have a party I'm planning for, go here. I have back to school, I'll go here. Um, so it's just a really unique platform and, uh, and stores are really clean and they're just, they're newer, I think, than some of the older stores with this opportunity. And, and, you know, they, they also get a, they also get a boost when there's new movies and some of the toy merchandise that comes out, you can see a boost in their sales when you have really popular movies, particularly Disney, too. So there's a lot of ways to win there with that store count as they as they really ramp it up to, you know, 3,000 stores from about 750 now. But help me out here, Eric, because I'm just looking at um, the FA page on uh, Bloomberg for some financial analysis on Five Below. And over the last four quarters, both revenue and earnings have been slowing um, so aren't we a little bit worried about those metrics? No, I, the, the, the management team is in the, in the process of ramping up store growth. So that, and the stocks performed really well as if that opportunity was already there. Um, there, the, the management team is just now executing on that plan of bigger growth doing, you know, 150 to 200 stores a year, uh, to get them to the 2,500 to 3000 stores, uh, over the next five or six years. So this is kind of a, an acceleration story. So looking at uh, some of your top holdings, um, Johnson & Johnson, that, that surprised me a little bit given all the issues they have. Is, can you just walk me through that a little? Well, we, we don't own that one anymore. Oh, okay. Uh, as, as Carol knows, we're, we tend to be pretty active, and we had a great trade in, in, uh, in Johnson & Johnson when it was really beat up. Nobody wanted it. And uh, and after it writes, you know, kind of captured that delta mm-hmm. between where it was undervalued back to fair value, we kind of moved on a little bit. Well, good for you. All right, all right. <laughs> smart trade. Not there. so bad. <laughs> um, so, tell us about another name that you're finding interesting. That maybe something that you recently added to your portfolio. I, I mean, you know, one of the biggest things for us is this Asia consumer spending theme. I mean, you, you have four billion people in Asia, and if you look right at China. There are more millennials and Gen Z, you know, kind of 35 and under in China than there are the entire population of the U.S. And those people are kind of leapfrogging the way we do things and going right to e-commerce. So there is a massive there's a massive opportunity for U.S. brands that already have great footholds in China. You know, Ferrari comes to mind, Nike, uh, Louis Vuitton, Lululemon. We talked about a few times Starbucks. So we own all those names. But then, you know, China wants to create its own brands that are dominant across China and Asia. And so we love Tencent and Alibaba 
and we've added to those a number of times, and those are two of the bigger the, the bigger holdings in there, because those are the those are the kind of the apples and the Googles and the Amazons of China. And you know, if, if Apple and and Amazon and even Microsoft is pretty close to a trillion in market cap, these guys that are about half a trillion in market cap have right. a, you know arguably a much bigger opportunity. Hey, can I let me just challenge you a little bit though, Eric? Like I'm just looking at um, Alibaba, the ADRs uh, traded here in the U.S. I mean, the stock's up 35 percent this year. I mean, you're talking about a forward PE of about 34, current PE of about 40. I mean, are you did you buy kind of at the high here a little bit, at least a recent high? No, I mean, we, you know, when did you buy, like, did did you buy back in December or no? Yeah, we've owned, we've owned them for about a year or so. So we we took advantage of a lot of this tariff stuff when, when China and emerging markets really got weak because of this potential slowdown. And then the tariff talk, we took an advantage to really beef up those holdings. But, you know, remember, growth stocks always look expensive um, uh, because there's such a huge opportunity and a runway for that potential growth. Eventually, the good ones grow into the valuation, and I see that with Alibaba and Tencent. You know, the, the Alipay and WeChat. I mean, if you've been over there, you can't even use cash over there. Right, it, right. Like, and credit cards really aren't a big thing in China. Everybody uses Alipay and WeChat. So these two companies, aside from being involved with the consumer across e-commerce and mobile payments, you know, you're also there is no deal VC deal that gets done in China without having Alibaba and Tencent be a part of that. So there's a there's a bit of a kind of a VC uh, angle to owning these companies because they're so dominant that they get a piece of every one of these businesses that's that's being funded and then ultimately goes right. public. And a lot of them they've already spun out into the world like IQ which is kind of the Netflix of China which is now which is now a public company. So besides J&J which you've exited, anything else that um you've you've as you've turned over your portfolio, you've exited because you, you thought it ran its course? And just got about 30 yeah, I mean, seconds. We, yeah, about 30 seconds. Yeah, I mean, we, we sold a lot of the defenses that really were there for in Q4. Uh, they served a purpose. They paid dividends. They're, they're stable. They're secure. Um, and and once, once we got through that volatility, then we turned back into a lot of these growth, a lot of these growth brands. All right. We're going to leave it on that note. Thanks, uh, Eric. We appreciate the time today. Eric Clark, he's Portfolio Manager at Rational Dynamic Brands Fund, uh, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.